Okay, Eric, why don't you open us in sure. prayer? Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. I just thank you for the fellowship that we were in the Word. Thank you, Ray, and his uh, desire to invest in us. And just impart your Word to us. And I pray, God, as we sit around and as we, as we share ideas and as we grow, Father, that we would experience you in the middle of Walk with you, can be trained but by you, and then motivated to to invest this in the life of the people who are in our spirit. We pray for those who are on their, on their way that you would bring them safely and they can join us and bless time and glorify Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, we're going to look at eschatology again, our second session. And last week, I tried to impress upon you the importance of this course. And I should have used this slide, one of the most important courses you will take. Tried to demonstrate that. And one of the things that we did in our introduction to our introduction was I tried to stress the idea that everyone has an eschatology. Every single person, even the atheist, the unbeliever, everyone, because all are created in the image of God. And all have a sense of future things, all have a hope for future things, but the unbelieving world and even a large portion of uh, Christian believers have a distorted view of the future. And it's only the biblical view, which we will deal with in this class, that gives us that proper view of the future. I mentioned this cartoon just to illustrate the idea that everyone has an eschatology. Dennis Menace, I'm going to learn to fly when I grow up, so I won't be scared later when I become an angel. That's an eschatological statement, right? Not Not a good one. (laughs) And that's the point. Unless you have a biblical eschatology, then you come up with a lot of weird ideas, ideas that are not biblical. We don't become angels when we go to be with the Lord. So what we want to stress is a biblical eschatology. So we spend a lot of time looking at that. In fact, the bulk of our course, I tried to demonstrate how important this is. Part of that is... The reason it's important is because since so many people have, well, everybody has an eschatology, and since we have a proper and a real and accurate, inspired, authoritative eschatology, we can use that in sharing it with even other believers, but also we can use it as an evangelistic tool to reach the unbelieving world. And there's a lot of things in eschatology that we can use because people do have a future hope. It may be distorted, but we are in a position to be able to give them the biblical hope. And it's a blessed hope, as we saw, for those that know the Lord. So after stressing its importance, and I gave you a a lot on, on that, it's the emphasis of Scripture, it has personal benefit, In fact, the Bible would be incomplete without it. Then we looked at the intent, and I mentioned I didn't have my correct notes, and this represents that better notes from the Olivet Discourse. I'll give you a little moment here to copy those verses if you want them. Yeah, I mentioned that uh, the purpose of eschatology is not to satisfy our curiosity, even though we have a curiosity about future things, 
but that's not the purpose of it. So last time I gave you from several other passages the purpose of eschatology, and in general it's to warn, Matthew 24, 4. I think we looked at 24 through 25, also verse 42. There's others as well where there's warnings. And the principle is, in general, we have a warning concerning eschatological issues to strengthen us. We looked at 24, 6, I think, or 7 or 8, I can't remember. But the design was, in terms of the Olivet Discourse, the design was to strengthen the disciples in preparation for what would take place very shortly in their experience, in their immediate time frame. So to strengthen, also to prepare them, 24, 6, and 8, and 43, 44. Mm -hmm. To comfort them, we looked at the First Thessalonians passage, but there's comfort also in the Olivet Discourse, 24, 31 through 35. Mm -hmm. To motivate, we looked at the parable there, 45, we didn't read the whole passage, 45 to 51, to motivate them to service. So we don't go to a mountaintop, we don't hide out, we don't give up. What we do is we try to be as faithful as we can in our service, and it's also to stimulate us in the area of service. 24, 45 through 51, same passage. Also 25, uh, 29 and 25, 46. So those are the passages that I alluded to last time in the Olivet Discourse and decided to include them on a slide as well. And ultimately, the purpose is to glorify God. And we said that uh, there's probably no area of study that brings glory to God more so than the study of eschatology because it reveals virtually every one of his attributes. And we talked a little bit about that. So we looked at world pressures, the interest today, the emphasis of the Bible, the personal benefit that eschatology will bring, and the theological significance. This is all just a little review. We concluded by saying there's only two alternatives. The alternative that you can find in the resources of man, man's ideas, all the way from the atheist to the religious, and even the religious, you might say, even the church goer in general does not have a biblical view of future things. So they primarily come out of man's ideas and man's resources. And the the only alternative is God's plan that he has revealed. He's been pleased to give a lot of detail concerning his future plan. But we also said we're going to look, starting next week, I don't think we'll quite get to it today, but next week we will focus on a biblical foundation for eschatology And when we talk about future things, we need to take into account, because it's helpful today in understanding eschatology that we look at today, we'll look at how God not only promised everything that he was going to do, sometimes not as clearly as others, but he promised everything ahead of time, revealed everything essentially, sometimes in broad strokes, and then a lot of that has already come into fulfillment So we want to kind of survey that in a little bit more than a complete session, how God has worked historically. So when you talk about eschatology, we're talking about not only last things from the 21st century, 
But in terms of future things, in terms of people that lived historically. And you remember last time, what did we say was the very first prophecy of all of Scripture? Genesis 2. Genesis 2, very good. Anyone remember the verse? 12. 17. Very good. That is not only the first recorded words of God, first thing that God speaks, at least the revelation of what God speaks in Genesis chapter 2 to Adam and Eve before the fall, but it's an eschatological statement because he promises them that in the day, future, that they eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that they will surely die. So that's prophetic. Not from our perspective, because obviously we're in sin, but for Adam and Eve, it was prophetic. So there's statements like that throughout the Old Testament, and we'll do a survey of them. Because in understanding them, it'll help us in interpreting and understanding things that are yet future from our time. So it reveals God's plan. So the conclusion that we can draw is that eschatology is not a side issue. That's why I say it's very important one of the most important areas of study. It's not just for Bible conferences and those that are interested in this area, even though it is diminished by a lot of pastors and a lot of a lot of churches. So we left off by looking at the interpretation. That's where we ended last time, the interpretation of Bible prophecy. This is very, very important as well, that we have a clear understanding of how to interpret prophetic passages. And so we'll take a quick look at the history of basically interpretation in general. And what I have summarized on this slide is basically the history of interpretation overall, but we can kind of look at the history in relationship to prophetic material as well, because it parallels essentially hermeneutics or interpretation in general. First of all, there is Jewish interpretation, and I use the number 460 BC to 550 AD as the period of Jewish interpretation, and the 460 only because we do have a statement in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, that gives us a, a little hint of how people in Nehemiah's day approach Scripture. And in that passage, if you look at it carefully, it appears, at least by implication, that Jewish interpretation was in general straightforward. We call that grammatical, historical, contextual, or we abbreviate that in general. We call that literal, not that it would deny or diminish figurative language, Nehemiah 8, I believe, and we won't look it up, but that's tied to that 460 date there. But you would expect that even earlier, like some of the uh, earlier Joshua, for example, or Moses, they would have taken prophetic statements, it appears, literally as well. Uh, during the Exodus, during that period of time, during Moses' time, the book of Exodus refers to the Abrahamic covenant. And it views it as you would view any covenant. A covenant, we'll talk a little bit about that when we look at our overview there of historical eschatology. One of the points I'm going to stress is a covenant is nothing more than a contract. 
like a contract that we enter into today. And you have, perhaps, if you have a mortgage, you have a contract with a bank. And the bank expects you to interpret that contract literally. In other words, when it specifies a specific dollar amount to the very penny, it expects that you pay to that very penny. You can't allegorize it. Well, uh, maybe they mean just a large amount. And to me, $200 is a large amount. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to pay. Well, it's not a large amount. It's a very specific amount. So these, these covenants or contracts were taken by Old Testament saints very, very literally as they were intended. So we expect, even though there's not a specific verse that indicates that, from all implications from passages, for example, references to covenants, uh, most of Jewish interpretation was a literal approach, not a spiritualizing. Now, later on, before Christ and beyond, Jewish interpreters began to try to harmonize Greek philosophy with biblical statements, and they began to allegorize. And not only the allegorical approach of interpretation, but the idea of spiritualizing passages, which is a little broader than simply allegorization, not taking passages in their normal, straightforward, literal sense, that began with Jewish interpretation. And it began somewhat early, uh, before, before Christ, as, as I mentioned. And we know that from some of the writings that still exist that are not biblical, and we see some of that. Then we have, I mentioned, I guess you could include the apostolic period, but particularly the period after the apostolic age after the first century, we mentioned that Jesus and the apostles interpreted it literally, it appears, but the period after that, it seems that the early believers took that literal approach as well. So during the patristic period from 95 to about 590, and by the way, these dates, I mean, they're not, you know, it's not 591, something radically changed. It's just, that's approximately the patristic period. The writings include that period of time. That they appear, particularly the early ones, or some of them, took a literal approach, not only in general, but in terms of uh, eschatology. Now, there did arise, during the patristic period, the school of Alexandria, that began to do the same thing that the Jewish people did. In fact, I think that's where they got the idea, where they began to spiritualize and take passages non-literally, and particularly and especially prophetic passages. So that's where non-literal approach actually began with prophetic, as well as passages pertaining to the early chapters of Genesis. So that began with the school of Alexandria around the... See, when was Origen? And we remember Origen is kind of the main church father that was the main one that all the others were following. Somewhere around third century, I believe. Third, fourth century. So both were in existence and both progressed into the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages from about 590 to about the 1500s. The 1500s just before the, the Reformation, which would be the next period. And during that period of time, there were the two schools. One that came out of Antioch, which was the more literal school of interpretation in general, but also in terms of prophetic material. And then you had alongside of it the 
followers of Origen and the Alexandrian school that tended to allegorize, and that continued to go. And in fact, during the Middle Ages, the dominant approach was a non-literal approach in general. So it would include eschatology, a non-literal approach. There were little pockets of literalists, kind of a minor view, somewhat in the background, not the main necessarily theologians of those ages, but the literal method persisted, and it was revived during the Reformation in the 16th century. In fact, the Protestant Reformation was more of a revival not so much, or not necessarily spiritual, it was more a hermeneutical revival. In other words, the approach to Scripture, and that approach to Scripture produced the spiritual revival that is better known. But it actually began with a different approach to Scripture and an elevating of Scripture to its proper position. People began to respect that this is the Word of God, and also an interpretive principle that Luther introduced. He introduced the, the principle that the Bible was written to be understood. What a novel concept, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was novel because in that period, the Bible was only to be interpreted by those that had the skill, only those that were in a position of leadership, only the papacy. They had the final word. The common people would only be confused by trying to read the Bible, so it was discouraged. It was in the Reformation that people began to read the Bible, and what happened? People came to realize the gospel message, and it became a spiritual revival. So, the Reformation is more a Reformation in hermeneutics, in interpretation, and then what followed was the spiritual revival where people came into a saving relationship. So the literal approach began to blossom in general, although, unfortunately, in terms of eschatology, it did not progress. In other words, it kept the somewhat the Roman Catholic interpretation of <laughs> eschatology. And as a result... Amillennialism persisted. The reformers were amillennial. In other words, they followed Augustine and those that were part of the amillennial approach. And an amillennial approach, as I mentioned also, that that approach, you have to take a non-literal approach to maintain. You can't take a literal approach because it'll undermine it. So it's during the Reformation that the literal approach in general began to blossom. The post-Reformation, you have two directions. You have a literal approach, and you also have the non-literal and even allegorical approach, 17th, 18th centuries. So you have kind of a mixed group in terms of Christianity. And it's about that time that people began to even look at eschatology in a more literal way. And in the modern period, you go in every direction and divisions of all sorts in terms of interpretive approaches. And in the modern period, we have also an emphasis in eschatological interpretation and the splintering in interpretation as well. So that's a brief little history there. Okay, that's the history of interpretation with an emphasis on interpreting eschatological passages.
We won't have time to complete this, but uh, let's at least get a start on interpreting prophetic materials, and we'll pick up wherever we leave off next week. So let's look at the interpretation of prophecy, and there's a lot that we could talk about, but let's primarily focus on some of the major principles and actually, there's one major principle that we need to, to stress here. And the first principle is we need to take a literal approach. Now, most of you have taken the hermeneutics course that I've taught, and we spent a lot of time on what this means. So let me just summarize it to remind you and for any that have not taken that. But we approach... Scripture overall, in a literal way, the more technical description is the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. We abbreviate that by saying this is the literal approach. And by literal, we don't mean that uh, there are not figures of speech or there are not signs or there are not uh, metaphorical language. But literal, and here's the key. When we say literal, we attempt to find what the author intended, author's intent. And we look to the text to let the author interpret his own work. So we look at and take his words in the way that he's framed them such that we try to understand what did he purpose, what did he intend. That's what we mean by literal. Now, if he's using a simile, he will give us some clues. Something is like something else. And there's a lot of similes and metaphorical language in eschatological material. Let the author tell us when he's doing that. Other than that, let him speak what he's saying and literal in the sense that the author speaks for himself. Now, it's the approach that we are taking that is only the, the only approach that is consistent in applying this principle. Every other approach, amillennialism and all of its varieties, postmillennialism and all of its varieties, preterism, which is another area in terms of interpretation, and all of its different varieties, there's two major ones, a historicist approach, an idealist approach to prophecy, every single one except the one that we will use departs from a literal approach. And what I mean by that is they will tend to spiritualize passages and overlook the little clues that an author will give in terms of what he intends in the communication that he's writing. The only way that you can hold to an amillennial position is you have to depart from a literal approach or a grammatical, historical, contextual. Some of the literature will refer it to grammatical, historical, and they'll leave off the contextual, but it, they're referring to the same thing. I like to include it because that's an important area. Grammatical, historical, contextual. And we abbreviate it by saying a literal approach. Now, I've got all kinds of things here, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over them. Uh, we talk about a lot of that in uh, hermeneutics, but just very simply, and I'll expand that with the, the next things that we're talking about. But when we 
if you take a literal approach, this is the approach that it appears that Jesus interpreted prophetic scriptures. This seems to be the approach that the apostles interpreted prophetic scriptures. This seems to be the approach that Old Testament saints later on interpreted prophetic scriptures. They interpreted them literally. Writers like Matthew, particularly when he is laying out events in the life of Christ, what does he say? Thus was fulfilled Isaiah, and then he quotes Isaiah and tells how that event in the life of Christ, for example, the virgin birth, and he quotes out of Isaiah 14, and there was a literal virgin birth. It was not a spiritual one. It was literal. In other words, Mary conceived without the help of a human being, without man. It was literal. He came from a literal city called Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah, Micah 5. Literal fulfillment. And you trace all of the little notes that Matthew gives in the gospel there over and over, and most of them are clustered at the very beginning of the life of Christ relating to his birth and early ministry. Then you have another cluster relating to his death, particularly on a cross. And again, Matthew goes back to that fulfillment motif, and each of those are fulfilled literally. So that gives us a clue when we approach scriptures, interpret them like Jesus did, or like Matthew did, or like Paul did, or we can give you some Old Testament examples as well. So a literal approach, a literal interpretation. And I'll give you some examples of that. In fact, this is probably a good time. Turn to the book of Revelation. Let me give you just one example. This kind of popped into my head. Maintain a consistent hermeneutic. Now, there's a tendency by theologians, and I'm talking about even good theologians that don't take this consistent approach, to treat the early chapters in Genesis non-literally. So they depart from a literal hermeneutic when it deals with Genesis 1 and 2. They also tend to do the same thing when it deals with eschatology, not only the book of Revelation, but the the passages in the Old Testament that are prophetic. But we want to maintain a consistent hermeneutic throughout. And it works. It works. I've exegeted the, well, a lot of passages, but particularly the entire book of Revelation, and you can consistently interpret it literally and make a lot of sense. In fact, it makes more sense than any other approach. Look at chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8. Let's see, where are we? Mark again, read 10 and 11, 8, Revelation 8, 10 and 11. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. The name of the star was called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Now, in approaching this passage... And let's look specifically at this star, all right? Now, if you understand, I mean, if you do a word study on it, you're going to come to a, you should come to the conclusion that when the Bible uses the word star, it doesn't distinguish between planets and asteroids and what we would call literal stars as well, but lights in the sky. The question is, is he talking about world leaders or a world leader or is he speaking in terms of something non-literal in terms of a star in verses 9 and 10? Is there anything in there that indicates that he's not 
speaking of something that falls out of the heavens and crashes onto the earth as a literal heavenly body? Do you see anything in there? Well, that's what it looks like. Yeah, he's he's giving you a kind of a picture of what it looks like, but he's not indicating by that that this is not a, a real object, all right? But that's a good observation, though. So it looks like something like a torch, which may suggest something coming through the atmosphere, burning up a little bit, okay? has a name, so it's very specific, and it does some d- destruction. Is there any indication that the... Th- the third of the waters in any way is non-literal? In other words, a large quantity of waters? Or do you think it's pretty literal? I don't see anything in there that steers us away from that. Okay? Now, he's using things to describe it that are a simile, for example. Now, skipped very in this, almost the same context. Look at chapter 9. And what I'm emphasizing here, let John, who's the author of the book, Give us the clues that we need to depart from the the literal in terms of uh, metaphorical language. Marcy, why don't you read verse 1? And what I want you to notice as she reads this, notice the similarity of the language in terms of the description of verses 10 and 11. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven. Okay, see that? Notice there's a star fell from heaven, verse 10. Here's a star from heaven. Keep reading. Which had fallen to earth. Okay, in verse 10, it burning torch and it falls on the earth and does damage on the earth. Okay, keep reading. And the key of the bottomless pit. Okay, anything strange in that verse or any clues in that verse? That Very good, very good observation. How? Why, why is it not neuter and... And it, and in the Greek, it's specific. It's it's masculine. Him. One thing is uh, already the point I'm making here is already he's giving you the little clues that you need. And as you read further, verse two, and he again, personal pronoun, he opened. So this star is in fact tied to a personage. So it's a. A symbol, you might say, or it's a description that pertains to a person. You have none of that in verses 10 and 11, and then almost within a few verses, well, within a few verses, almost the same context, a similar description, except now it's tied to a person. John is giving us a little clue here that he's using this star to refer to a personal being. If you do that same word study... The word star here is the exact same word as you have in verse 10. But if you look up all of the verses, you'll find that in some context, that word is in fact tied to a personage. It's used as a symbol or a a figure for a person. And here's one of them. And verse 2, he, that star, opened the bottomless pit. And if you keep reading, you'll find that this is a demonic spirit that he's describing. And he's using similar language as what he used in 10 and 11 of chapter 8 to describe that. So there's a shift, there's a change there. That's my point. But John is careful to give us the clues. So we let him give us the clues that guide us in terms of taking this star in chapter 9 differently than we took the star in verse 10 of chapter 8. Does that make sense? So a literal approach lets the author give you all the clues that you need when he departs from literal 
in relationship as opposition to metaphor. Okay. And there's lots of other examples that we could give. Mark, you were going to make a comment. I'm sorry, I overread you. Uh, in the end of verse 1, to have a bottomless pit that has a key indicates something other than literal. Yeah, there, there's, there's another... something there that indicates another like little symbolism. Cl- yeah, another little clue here. Exactly. And you'll find lots of other clues as well. This star does certain things later on. Yeah, so there's lots of things in there that indicate that the star here is different from the star in chapter 8. Okay? But the author controls that, not me. I'm not free to impose an interpretation on the passage from my own ingenuity or my own wisdom, if you will. (laughs) Let the author determine. So we take a literal approach. The second principle is the pattern of history, and I mentioned a little of that. That's kind of related to what did the Old Testament saints do with prophetic passages? What did Jesus do with prophetic How did he do, deal with them? How did the apostles interpret prophetic passages? How did even uh, the apostle John quote from, pass, or allude, he alludes more than he does quoting, from Old Testament prophetic scriptures? What's their pattern in terms of interpreting and also in terms of utilizing them? Are you asking how do they identify them? Like by saying... No, not identify them. How do they interpret? Okay. Yeah, how do they interpret these passages? And there's a lot of interpretation that is done, particularly in uh, writings, for example, Matthew, that I used as an example. So the pattern of history, there's a pattern not only of interpretation but a, a pattern of how events work themselves out that gives us clues as to how God may work out some of these things in the future from our perspective. So you can utilize the pattern of history. Thirdly, you want to be very careful in interpreting prophetic passages. We have the benefit of further revelation. We have the benefit of the New Testament. So a lot of Old Testament passages are interpreted for us. By, by the New Testament. We can sort out, for example, those messianic prophecies. For example, Isaiah 9. A child shall be born, a child shall be, or a son shall be given. That Isaiah 9 passage, we have the benefit of, and we celebrate that at Christmas, that is a description of the incarnation that deals with the first coming, and we can sort that out, and then, Without a a period, it's part of the sentence, he goes into the next verse, and the government shall rest on his shoulders. That was not fulfilled. But it gives us a clue in terms of there was a literal son, a literal child, there's going to be a literal government that's going to rest on the shoulders of Messiah. It didn't happen in the first century. He didn't establish a spiritual kingdom. Well, he did, but that's not what's described. There's going to be a literal kingdom in the future that Christ is going to shoulder, if you will, that kingdom. It's going to be on his back. He is going to rule it. And then all the supporting passages. So we have the perspective of the New Testament to be able to sort out these messianic passages. Okay, this one has to pertain to the first coming. It was fulfilled. So we can expect a similar fulfillment with the second coming. And it's not fulfilled yet unless you spiritualize it, unless you depart from principle number one. So you have a New Testament perspective. You might look for this. Now, this is kind of a minor principle, but be aware of it. 
Sometimes there's a telescoping principle that in, is involved in some, some passages. And I try to illustrate this telescoping principle. The, if you're standing in the days of the prophet and what the prophet saw, and sometimes the prophet didn't understand everything that he was prophesying. This is revelation, and he didn't necessarily... For example, I'm, I'm not sure I, Isaiah recognized the distinction that is made in that Isaiah 9 passage, but he reveals the package of Messiah, and it's a package, but we break it down because we have the New Testament perspective. What he sees it, he sees it as a whole. He sees different aspects of it, but it's part of a whole. But over time, and with the perspective of the New Testament, we see that some of it is fulfilled even perhaps in the near time of the prophet. It might pertain to the culture in which the prophet lived. And it may have a fulfillment in the first coming of Christ, like the Isaiah Isaiah passage, the son and the child. But in the same sentence, it goes beyond and there's a gap. The prophet is viewing it from this direction and it looks like this and it looks like one composite prophecy. From our perspective of the New Testament and history and the separating out, there are these aspects that separate out, and in fact there's 2,000 years between this and the ultimate fulfillment. And I think that is helpful in interpreting, for example, the Isaiah 9 passage. Also, Isaiah 61 is another good example. Jesus uses Isaiah 61 to kick off his ministry. And he reads the verse, and he breaks in mid-sentence. He doesn't finish the sentence. What kind of hermeneutics is that? (laughs) He breaks it in two parts because the last part does not pertain to the first coming. So he stops in mid-sentence. It's similar to the Isaiah 9 passage. Stops in mid-passage. The uh, Isaiah 61 passage, Isaiah is looking at it as a composite And what Jesus is doing is he's breaking it apart. And the second part will be fulfilled at the second coming. So you have an example with Isaiah 61. Even Isaiah 53, you can break that up as well. Not all of it was fulfilled. Isaiah 53 and 54. Zechariah 9 is another example of what God is doing in that passage. 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. The Messiah coming on a donkey, that's fulfilled and then the universal dominion of Messiah that's also in that verse is not till the second coming. And it's all in one passage, one composite. And so do you think that... Missed the Messiah? Missed the Messiah. Part, partly. were expecting a composite. composite. yes. Partly. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the whole story, but that's partly it. Okay, a couple more. There's this telescoping. Similar, but it's... This, this next one is similar, but it's different. There's also what you might call a... Double reference or a double fulfillment, the law of double reference, where you have one prophecy, but you have multiple fulfillments. That other one, you have one prophecy, but different aspects of the same prophecy fulfilled in different time frames. This one, you have multiple fulfillments of the same prophecy. See the distinction? And let me illustrate it this way. The prophet sees the composite but you have you could have a near partial fulfillment like the Isaiah 14 there were some things in the time frame of Isaiah that may have been fulfilled and then you have a fulfillment in a first coming aspect and then you have a ultimate and total fulfillment 
ultimately at the second coming. And I'll let you look these up, but I think when Peter is expounding in Acts chapter 2, and he's talking about the, the Joel passage, and he says, thus it is fulfilled in, you know, he says it's fulfilled today. But only part, if you read through even the quotation, even part of it is not fulfilled in the first century unless you spiritualize the passage. And that's what, what some theologians do. But what he's saying is there are some parts of this that are fulfilled in the first century on the day of Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But there was not the miraculous display that he also describes. And in the ultimate fulfillment, you'll have every aspect fulfilled of the same prophecy. You'll have a total and complete fulfillment. So Acts 2 is an example. Matthew 17 is another example when it refers to Elijah coming and the disciples say, uh, well, where's Elijah? And Jesus says, well, Elijah came and you didn't recognize him. He was John the Baptist. He's referring to the Malachi 3 passage and John the Baptist fulfilled to some extent that passage. But Jesus also said, Elijah will come. In other words, there's going to be a literal coming of Elijah, but that will not take place till the second coming. That makes sense? So I think that kind of helps us to understand some of those passages. And there's a few others like that. Um, the Olivet Discourse, you could even say, there's somewhat of a double fulfillment. There were some things that were fulfilled in the first century, but the bulk of it is not fulfilled till even future from the church age. Okay, so let's wrap up with the last one here. Uh, actually, one one more. It's good in interpreting passages to look in harmony of all of the prophetic scriptures. In other words, try to put them within a context of all prophetic scriptures. The broader, the big plan of God. And if it's incongruous or inconsistent with that broader plan, if it doesn't harmonize with the broad strokes, then you probably are misinterpreting a passage. And we're going to see a major theme of all prophetic scriptures is a period of time called the tribulation. And if you can fit all those passages, in other words, most of them will refer to that period of time. Another major theme is the coming of Messiah himself. And those are two major themes. And they ha any interpretation of any passage should be in conformity to the to totality of Revelation concerning any of those major areas. Make sure that you harmonize your interpretation with that broader plan. We went over the, the principles. And the main principle was the literal approach to maintain a consistent hermeneutic. In other words, treat prophetic scriptures the same as you would interpret other scriptures. And we looked at other principles that are particularly applicable to prophetic material as well, in addition to the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. And I'll talk some more about that in a moment. But in the area of interpretation, and we're going to see some of these terms or phrases occur over and over. So I'd like to just kind of give you uh, an overview of them. And these are just the conclusions that I've come to, and I'm not going to spend too much time other than so that 
just to give them to you so that we don't, you know, we're not talking past each other so we have a better feel for what's going on. First of all, a very, very common phrase, the day of the Lord. That is very frequent in the Old Testament and it's picked up in the New Testament. The day of the Lord. In its context, and that's what determines how you interpret In the context, you will notice when it describes the day of the Lord, it's not talking about one single day. It's not talking about, it's not, even though it uses the word yom, the Hebrew word, but in the context, it is referring to it like we would say in my grandfather's day, or in the day of the founders of our country. We're not talking about a particular, you know, it wasn't July 4th that we're talking about, we're talking about in that time period. So the day of the Lord is used in that sense, and yom is used in that sense. It's used in a non-literal sense. Context dictates that. And if you study those contexts, you're going to find that it's dealing mainly with a period where God intervenes in the affairs of men to bring judgment. It has to, he has to bring judgment first. And in some of those passages... It is referring particularly to a period of time that is more specifically described, I'll get to that term in a moment, called tribulation. So the day of the Lord, you might think of it more as the time when God intervenes in history, as the day of the Lord. And it'll include several events. It'll include the entire tribulation period. And it'll include the second coming itself. Sometimes some passages refer to the day of the Lord as referring when the Lord comes in the Old Testament, when Messiah arrives. And there's a few passages that even include the kingdom that the Messiah will establish. So it includes almost the package, the eschatological package. So a period of time when God intervenes in the affairs of man, and where he is prominent, and he's doing certain things. He's bringing judgment, he's bringing salvation, he's bringing kingdom. Does that make sense? But most of the passages deal with the judgment. So most of them pertain to the great tribulation, day of the Lord. And secondly, tribulation. When we're talking about eschatology, we are talking about, and I'll try to demonstrate this, we're talking about a very specific period of time. You might even consider it specifically a week of years, Daniel's 70th week. I'm going to give you, towards the end of class, an overview of the Olivet Discourse. That is Matthew 24, 25. That is Jesus' exposition on eschatology. That's his course on eschatology. He gives a course to the disciples. It's a one-day seminar. And it took me, what, Jim, to <laughs> expound it? <laughs> oh, about five months. <laughs> I can't remember. So it's a full-blown course. It is full. But that is his course, if you will, on eschatology. And the bulk of it deals with Daniel's 70th week. The point I made was it does not pertain to the church age. It's Jewish. It pertains to Jewish things. And it describes that period of time called tribulation. So I equated it with Daniel's 70th week, which is prophetic, that looks at a period of time in the future in Israel's history, Israel's time frame. And when we talk about it, I'm going to show that it 
even starts much earlier than Daniel. It goes all the way to Deuteronomy before even the nation is formed. A period very specific. And that's important that we have this specific idea because there's a lot of confusion in the church today concerning the tribulation, whether the church goes through it, whether the church goes partially through it, all of that. It's, I think all of these other views are a misunderstanding of what is meant by that period of time that is specific and Jewish. And by the way, the bulk of the book of Revelation from chapter at least 6, but you could even include 4 and 5, so all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 19, the bulk of the book of Revelation describes that specific time frame. So when we talk about tribulation, that's what we're talking about. Now, the words that are related to tribulation are words that are common and are used in other contexts in terms of just suffering. Christians can expect to suffer just as Jesus suffered. We're not immune from suffering or persecution or even, in this general sense, tribulation. But when we're speaking about eschatology, we're talking, and when we're referring to that specific period, we call it tribulation. The tribulation. Very specific, very specified. That makes sense? Okay. And we'll try to clarify that as we go through. In fact, we're going to look at different positions today. Kingdom. This is a word that is used in a lot of ways as well throughout Scripture. The word kingdom. Now, there is a sense, and in some passages, the word kingdom refers to God reigning in general. God never relinquishes his reign. He is always sovereign. He's been sovereign before the creation, before there was a universe. God was sovereign. He never changes. He's immutable. So that's an attribute of God or a perfection of God that is eternal. He is always sovereign. So there's a sense in which he always rules. He's always ruler. That's not the way the word is used in its more specific sense when it refers eschatologically. Now, in a broad sense, it would be part of this big, big idea of God's rulership. But when we're talking about a kingdom, again, we're talking about a specific time frame. And in fact, John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, gives us the specific time frame. It's only that passage that tells us it's millennial. So it's millennial. There is a sense in which God is ruling now in the church age. In fact, there's a sense in which Jesus Christ is ruling now in the church age. That's not the kingdom. That's not the specific kingdom that is referred to in a lot of eschatological passages. When the Old Testament refers in that future eschatological sense, it is very specific. In fact, I believe when God established that earthly kingdom of the nation of Israel, it has all of the characteristics, the major characteristics, of a millennial kingdom in a very idealized form in the future. So we'll be referring to the kingdom. There's a lot of confusion in the church today. In fact, the church today in general, I'm not talking about necessarily conservative circles, but church today uses the word kingdom in a couple of ways. It almost refers to the time frame we're living in now. The church is the kingdom. It's one way that it's used. Sometimes it's also used, and sometimes even by conservatives, to refer to heaven. In other words, the future kingdom as heaven. 
I'm going to make a distinction between the millennial kingdom and heaven. Two different things. Two different things. The millennial kingdom is part of world history from the perspective I'm going to give. At the end of the thousand years, God continues to reign and there's a sense in which there's still a kingdom, the kingdom, and it extends. The millennial kingdom seems to extend. There seem to be some changes, but it's different from heaven. I think that heaven is different from history. I think the last event, we mentioned this last time, the last event of world history is the great white throne judgment. And after that, we go into an eternal state, and that's outside of history. Does that make sense? Mark? When you mentioned that great white throne judgment, that was one of the things you didn't mention on the day of the Lord. Is that also something in Scripture that says that's concluded in the day of the Lord? I don't know specifically, but there are some passages that seem to refer... I don't know if a specific passage refers to the great white throne. But there's some general passages that do speak in terms of judgment, which would include kind of a broader picture of judgment. Yeah. But no specific passage that I know of. Jim? Well, the benefit uh, to the believer of recognizing this literal approach to theology is it contributes to their hope because they recognize Yes. They see the things that are being fulfilled. Yes. Right. Exactly. Very good. So... We'll try to distinguish when we're using the word kingdom in a different sense other than that specific thousand-year period. But when we're speaking eschatologically, that's what we're talking about in general. Wrath of God. Wrath of God. People are afraid of that, and rightfully so. Wrath of God, emphasizing his holiness. That is a common phrase as well, the wrath of God. And in a lot of contexts, when it refers to this wrath of God, it's during the day of the Lord. So it's a general phrase that can refer to any time frame, at any time, but it can also be used in a very specific sense to refer to the future wrath. And most of that is during the tribulation period, where the wrath of God will be very visible, very evident. There's also several... Terms related to the second coming, I won't get into those specifically. We will talk about them when we talk about the second coming, when we talk about it. But just to give them to you real quickly, parousia is a word that is used to refer to the second coming. And it's used sometimes in reference to the specific first phase of the second coming. We call that the rapture. I see the second coming... Coming in phases, first phase, rapture, second phase, visible, public, dramatic, glorious coming, the actual second coming where he comes to earth, parousia is used in both of those uh, phases. There's also epiphania, epiphania, which you could translate in general appearance, the appearance of the Lord, that's how it's translated sometimes, and appearance it's used, it was used in a common sense in the uh, first century of the appearing of important leader, an emperor or a king, and the ultimate king will appear. There's also phanerao, phanerao, translated also appearing or manifestation. And in some of those contexts, it's a, a manifestation of glory. Apocalypsis. Book of Revelation refers to that, and there's other passages. That word means to unveil, to unveil. We'll, we'll come back to these and look at them in 
more detail. And I'll give you other passages. Apocalypsis unveiling. Apocalypse. No, I know a lot of Latin. Huh? So he's asking like. There's a, in Romanian, they, they actually use the word apocalypse for re, they don't, for revelation. Yeah. So yeah, that's revelation in Portuguese as well. It's called apocalypse. Yeah, and I think they do in Spanish cultures as well, just yeah. in Spanish, that's right? That's the Latin. Yeah. And sometimes it's referred even in English to the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it comes from the Greek word there. But sometimes the second coming is referred to as as an apocalypsis. And then a very common word that has just a wide range of meaning in terms of coming. In other words, tomorrow is coming. Uh, my friend is coming, uh, just in general. It's very common in the New Testament. But there are a few of erkamai. That's the Greek word, erkamai. There are a few of them that are referring specifically to the coming of Jesus or Messiah. And by the way, there are Hebrew these are the Greek words. There's Hebrew words as well. And some of them are parallel with these or equivalents to these. So those are the major terms that we'll deal with in interpreting. Okay, that is all we need to do in terms of these principles.